So the whole, the whole project this morning is to see if everybody can get a little further away from me, okay? See if you can all just move to the, maybe you could stand in the hallway, all right? You could sit in the car, Tony, you really could. No, no, no Bluetooth. So how is everybody this morning? You all seem to be in pretty good spirits. Sun come up. Uh, it's nice to look at the weather map and not see any clouds over Ohio. Of course, you and I both know that that's just a trick of the devil. We, we know they're coming. So before we start, before we move into this morning's section, let's, um, let's take a moment and just thank God for the things he's done this week. A lot of good things going on in our world, some bad things, but frankly, I'm pretty much tired of focusing on all the bad things because I find myself growing in anger and distrust and frustration, and that's really, really not the Paul Grice that I want to be. So I'm not going to walk around going happy, happy, happy all day long, but I'm going to spend less time uh, stressing and fretting over the bad things and spend more time trying to focus on the things God is doing around me. Uh, and God is doing some good things. He's doing some good things here at JIBC. Awana's about ready to wrap up. I don't know how many of you are involved with Awana on Wednesday night, but to see those little kids run through the building, that's going to be like music to God's ears. It's got to be nothing. For me, nothing says growth and health like... Um, the sound of little voices, and to hear them playing and laughing and having to yell at them every week not to run in the sanctuary. You know you're not allowed to do that. Get back over here and walk in. Uh, to me, that's just, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. So let's go to God and thank him for the good things he has done in our lives. Father God, we know that life is full of unique challenges. We know that our world is bombarded from the media and from others about all the negativity and and it's to be expected. Man is a fallen and broken and damaged creation. We spend our lives making our lives miserable. We spend our lives, many of us, looking for someone to take us out of our misery and make us happy. And we know that only comes from a relationship with you. And then once we're in that relationship, so many of us do so many things to make that relationship strained. Your word says you desire our obedience more than sacrifice, that you want our love. Lord, today let us focus on our love for you, our love for the word, our love for each other as we become the body and the bride of Christ, as we share our faith and our testimonies with not only each other's, but those that are outside the household of faith. Watch over this place today. Watch over Denny as he is teaching, the new members class, this class, the preaching that will come, the music that is to be played and sung. Watch over our little ones downstairs as the future Americans, the future believers are being cared to and tended. And Lord, we just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What did Aaron teach on last week? I, I, I don't hear very well, so you have to speak up loud enough for me to hear. Boy, he did a good job, didn't he? All of you are right. Bibliology. 
did he go through the different areas of theology with you? Did he list them out or did he just run right to his topic and then hide? Did I say that out loud? I didn't mean to. Okay, so we're in the process of teaching through the, what are accepted as the 13 areas of theology. Aaron had bibliology, which is the study and structure of the Bible. How we got the Bible, how it came into being. Some of the other ones are theology proper, which is one that I selectively chose not to try to teach because frankly in, in college it gave me a headache. Uh, it's the, the theology of God proper, uh, the entirety of who God is. And then there's ecclesiology, the calling out of the church, the doctrine of the church. There's uh, eschatology, final events. There's pneumatology, which is Holy Ghost, the study of the Holy Spirit. There's um, Haymarktiology, the doctrine of sin. There's anthropology, the doctrine of man. There is soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. There is uh, angelology, that's pretty self-explanatory. So uh, demonology, I'm trying to think, I've, I've missed at least one. Oh yeah, the one we're gonna talk about today, Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ. We all know who Christ is. We, uh, we read about him in scripture, we've placed our faith in him, but what about him? What do we know about Jesus? Anybody want to, anybody want to share what they know about Christ? Excuse me? God in the flesh. You guys are letting me down. Not really. Let's talk about his title, the significance of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is more than just some, some nomenclature, some tag that scripture writers put on. There are, there are three sides to this. The word Lord declares his deity. Somebody look up for me Hebrews 1.10. There's some reading to be done today, so everybody get your, your big deep voice on. That's in the new part of the Bible that looks old. Anybody want to read it for me or do I have to do all the work today? Hey. Say what? Hebrews 1.10. Lord declares his deity. It's his divine name. So it's not just as, as some have used the title, just as Lord showing a, a preeminence over others or a position I know in, in the English culture, they have lords and ladies. It's not that way. The term Lord speaks to his divinity. It is who he is. It's his deity. He is the Lord. He is Above all and over all, he is by far at the top of all of the lists ever known. The second part of that, Jesus declares his humanity. And just so, just so we get clear, um, this is his human name. And it's only been part of his name since his birth. Okay, he wasn't in eternity past named Jesus. He's always been Lord. Jesus is the name that Mary 
gave him. Okay, His friends all knew him as Jesus. Um, if you've watched any of some of the movies about him, uh, those that run around with him and hung around with him and played with him, they would have called him Jesus. That was his human name, much like my name is Paul. There would be, um, I, if you really, if he had went to Torah school, maybe they'd put a little tag on him and said, hi, my name is Jesus. Of course, it would have been in Hebrew and looked a lot different. But in Matthew 1, 21 and 2, 1, um, give us an idea that Jesus is indeed the name he was given. Um, so it's the second part of his name, and it's, it's not insignificant, but it's important that we realize that when we say his name, we are referencing him, when we use the name Jesus, we reference him in all three of these names, but it is his human name. I prefer to use the name Christ. I prefer to use that rather than Jesus so much because I think for me it clearly defines him in a better way. And Christ being the last part of that name declares his office. His official name means the Messiah or the Anointed One. And as the son of David, he was born Messiah with all the rights inherent with that position. So we have Lord as his divinity, Jesus is his humanity, and Christ is his office. He came to fulfill the works of the office of Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. He was conceived and born, lived a sinless life, which we will talk a little bit later, or I'll talk about and you'll listen. And those three names together wrap up in an entirety who he is. So when, when we talk about him, we need to make sure that we don't I guess overemphasize one as compared to the other because it would, be, it would be like trying to talk about the value of an egg and leave the other parts out, if you will. Like I know a lot of you probably don't eat egg yolks, right? How many here don't eat egg yolks? It's okay to admit it, I do. I eat every part of the egg but the shell. And sometimes the shell, depending on who's cooking it. If I'm cooking it, I just think of it as free fiber, okay? You, you wouldn't necessarily reference an egg without talking about the different pieces of it, but you still refer to it as an egg. So, and Christ officially entered his messianic office at his baptism on or about the age of 30. We find that in Luke 3, 21 through 23. And now the part that really kind of makes everybody's head spin, and it's the deity of Christ. Um, how many of you think Christ existed eternally forever and ever? Was he pre-existent? I kind of have a hard time with thinking backwards. I, it's easier for me to picture eternity going that way, going forward, moving on, you know, Star Trek stuff, you're 20,000 whatever, and you know, maybe you know, five million years from now, the dates will change. I mean, I can kind of picture that a whole lot easier than going backwards in my mind to a point where the only thing that truly existed was God. And, and Christ being part of that, I, I kind of sometimes have a hard time wrapping my head around all of it, but I believe it because Scripture teaches it, so therefore I believe it. But I would be lying to you if I didn't say that there are parts of Christ that just really kind of put my head, I kind of do the German Shepherd thing. I lay my head over on one side and my ears point out and I look kind of funny. Uh, because there's facets to it that we'll never fully grasp. We'll never, we will never fully understand all there is to know about him. 
So in Isaiah 9, and I'm sure some of you could probably quote most of this, Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, which is literally translated the Father of Eternity and the Prince of Peace. So there we have him, clear back at the beginning, in the beginning of creation. We see him before everything else came along. Always there, always present, always involved, always in fellowship with the Father, always in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, all of that together. And then Micah 5.2 tells us, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler of Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He has always existed. He took on humanity for our benefit in obedience to God the Father. But he has always been and always will be fully God. Must be real careful when we talk about him, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, to not pry the pieces of him apart. Okay? My name is, for instance, my name is Paul Grice. I am, I am the, the proud husband of one fabulous young lady. We've been together for half, almost half a century now. Sounds better that way, don't it? I'm the father of two, uh, one magnificent kid, and one that we're still not real sure about. Um, six granddaughters, which, you know, that's enough to make any man want to work overtime and not be around. I'm an electrician by trade. I'm a, a leader here at church. I'm, a, I'm an aggravated driver when I'm on the road. And I'm a consumer of coffee, heavily. But when you talk about me, you don't pry any of those pieces apart unless you want to specifically talk about that. When we talk about Christ, when we talk about Jesus, we need to remember that all of those things, all of those things together make him who he is. And it's unwise to begin to separate that in such a way that calls more attention to one than the other. Okay? He is who he is because that's who he is. He is what we refer to as the second part of the Trinity, although that is just in reference. It's certainly not by power, authority, or placement. We just refer to them as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It, to be a part of that, it necessitates the eternal preexistence of our Lord. He had to be existent. Uh, somebody read for me John 1.1. 1, 1. Some probably quote most of these. What was before the beginning? What? Very good. Had a baby, give him a gold star. So before the beginning, we still have God. And we will have God after the end. Should he sometime in eternity decide to eliminate all of us, which he won't because that would be contrary to his nature and to his word, because the one thing God cannot do is lie, he will still be God. 
and he will still be there. There is no end to God, just as is there is no beginning to it. And, and frankly, that's the kind of stuff that made me lose sleep. How, how, does, how does someone eternally exist without a beginning? Because we're finite creatures, we all think about a beginning. Um, and just as when we think of the void before the creation, we have a hard time imagining nothing because when you think of nothing, you've thought of something and therefore your nothing becomes something and you don't have nothing anymore. That, that'll drive you crazy. Write that down, okay? So when we think about God and his eternal preexistence or Christ and his pre-eternal existence, we have to remember that it, it is necessitated because of the very nature of God and of the Trinity. Um, also, Christ's role of creator, Colossians 1, um, 15 through 18, and I'll read these because these are some of my favorite. These are my favorite Jehovah's Witness witnessing, witnessing verses. I want you to know that. When, if and when they ever come to my door, they don't come much anymore. That and the Mormons even stopped coming by, which kind of disappoints me. I like having them come by. They were easy. Paul writes in the book of Colossians, he says, boy, you know what they say. Get the right book before you start reading. It wouldn't have done much good to read from the book of James, would it? I say that doesn't look like I wanted to say that. Verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. He cannot be truly God. He cannot be truly deity if he was not absolutely involved in creation. So what I do to Jehovah's Witnesses, they talk about Jehovah. I said, did Jehovah create, create everything? Well, yes, he did. I said, well, then it says here that Jesus created all those things. And if he created all those things, then he must be God because God created everything, right? And then they run away. Some of the attributes of his deity, and I know this is, this is slow going. I tried to condense a two-hour theology class from Bible college into a 45-minute Sunday school class, and frankly, I don't know if we're going to make it. Um, there are some attributes to his deity that all of us should be semi-aware of. One of them is life. In him was found life. He, he self-existed. He has always been. And then probably the most important factor is, is his immutability. God doesn't change. He is the same today as he was 10,000 years ago, as he will be in a million years. Jesus will always be the same. Granted, there was a change when he died and was resurrected. When he came back to life, there was a, a change in his physical structure. But in and of himself, who he was has never changed, never will. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. He is as much in this room as he is with Denny, as he is with Pastor Dan, as he is with my son-in-law and my daughter in the church they're starting in somewhere in Iowa. Um, yes? No, 
just in, in my understanding of that passage is we're two or more gathered in my name. It's just a confirmation that he is always there. And if the two of you are together and you're praying over a subject, he's in the midst of that. Just as much as if you were at home locked away in your prayer closet or driving down the road. I don't know how many of you pray when you drive. Um, God is very much, Christ is very much present with you in that moment as you're praying. Um, there's never a time when you're away from him, but I think the idea is that he brings comfort and solace and uh, strength to those moments of prayer when it's you and another. Because some of the most rewarding times you will have in prayer is where with somebody that you dearly trust and love and admire and you pray and you know you have felt the presence of God in your midst. Okay, did I answer that or did I muddy the waters? Okay, perfect. So anyhow, the, the assignment for you would be to continue to seek that out and figure out what it means. That's what they did to us in college and drove me crazy. He is omniscient. He knows everything. And the scary part about that is he even knows your thoughts. I have made the mistake many times of offending people. I know you find that hard to believe. And very, very, very rarely have I ever meant to do so. And I find that he knows those moments and he knows my thoughts. He knows why I do things. And to hide, do something knowingly wrong and tell someone, well, I, I didn't mean it that way. Well, frankly, he knows whether you did or didn't. He knows all things. Nothing's going to catch him by surprise. Let's put it that way. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is holiness. One of his attributes is love. And probably the greatest is truth. I believe that's why God dislikes lying so much. The next aspect of Christ would be his humanity. And I'm really not going to labor this thing very heavy because I think all of us would realize that, that Jesus was the human side of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some reasons for the incarnation. The first one was to do what? Why did he come to earth? What, who? For his glory. One of the other things he came to earth for was to reveal God. Didn't he reveal God to us in the flesh? How about to identify with humanity? How great it is to know that Christ lived like we lived. We're watching a program on, on the internet and uh, some of the scenes they show the apostles and, or the disciples and, and Christ and they're, they're going out and doing stuff. And I suppose in my mind, I never pictured them sleeping in these little stick figure huts with, with blankets and stuff on them and sitting around a fire. And, and their diet consisted of basically like pita bread every night and uh, water from a wineskin and walking uh, the picture of the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And, he, and the picture there is that well is way up on a hill, you know, and, and they have to go up there and get water and bring it back. Never thought about it. But he lived the same struggles and frustrations that we lived. He also took on flesh to become the mediator between God and man. There had to be a sacrifice for sin. There had to be someone that could stand in the gap between God and man. He became that sacrifice. He came to destroy the works of the devil, to become a merciful and faithful high, high priest, you know, the high priest job in the Old Testament might have been one of glory, but it certainly had its moments of fear. 
when they have to tie a rope around, your, around you when you go into the Holy of Holies in case God strikes you dead so they can drag your carcass back out, that's probably not the highlight of your year, okay? I mean, you probably kissed the wife goodbye real heavy that morning. But, well, I didn't want to work. Maybe I'll see you tomorrow. Maybe I won't. Okay. To provide an example of holy living and to fulfill God's promise of the kingdom through an heir, the son of David. And then probably the greatest thing found in Ephesians 1.10 is that he delivered all of the earth, will deliver all the earth from the curse of sin. Why was he born of a virgin? Say what? Right? Where'd you get your sin nature from? From my dad. I got it from my dad. My dad did it. Dad was a bad guy. But unfortunately, my mom got her sin nature from her dad, so I guess that gives me the sin nature on both sides, don't it? Scripture says that for by one man sin entered in, the presence, the overshadowing of Mary by the Holy Spirit and then the conception of Christ showed there was no transference of a sin nature. Thus the reason there are some other factors about him that will come into play because he doesn't have the sin nature. He doesn't have that, that damaged goods, if you will. He's not broken. He is, he is completely human and yet he is still completely divine. Um, that's called the hypostatic union, uh, the two sides together, no one more than the other, completely there, they're not mixed. The humanity didn't bring down the, the deity side and the deity didn't raise the human side. Both of them are fully and completely intact in the person of Christ. Okay, in the person of Jesus, we find both aspects, both equally present, both equally functional, both equally balanced, and yet not mixing together. He did not become a third person. Okay. There's just the two natures are in one. It's indissoluble. I wrote that down. I still can't say it. And everlasting. He is the hypostatic union. There's two views of his nature in building the doctrine of Christology that we need to think about. They're, they're big words. Some of you probably know them. One is called the impeccability of Christ. Andy knows this word. Don't you, Andy? He's ignoring me. He's scrutinizing me. He'll be on my grade card later. Impeccability is the doctrine or the statement that says Christ could not sin. Okay? And the other one is peccability, which says that Christ could sin. Those are two stances that people take when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And I would say that this church holds strongly to the idea of impeccability. Don't believe Christ could have sinned. And I'll tell you why. Scripture never records him sinning or to be sin or to have sin accounted to him in any way that was true. Secondly, if he could have sinned, then he would have had to have possessed that sin nature, which because of the immaculate conception, the uh, overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, he did not have. And some would say, but what about the temptations the devil laid on him? If he couldn't sin, why'd the devil do it? Any thoughts? That, isn't that why he fell? Yeah. And he was, he was also trying to play to the human side, which the human side, although fully human and desired food, 
Christ being who he was, was in control of, hum of his humanity. Okay, the devil knew it wasn't going to work, or he was willing to try. And for us, it shows us, I think it shows me, that there's no temptation that I can be offered that through the power of Christ in my life that I can't overcome. Okay, and there are temptations, I don't know about you guys, but I have temptations every day. There are things that happen every day that lead me to temptation. I work with some of the most vile and deranged guys you've ever met in your entire life, okay? And, and there are things that happen in my world every day that, that I have to look at and say, you know, God, you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to protect me from this. You're gonna have to give me the strength to get through this. So he, he defeated the devil in the temptations, and then he is also immutable, which means he doesn't change. And the reason is, number one, through his omnipotence, he was too strong to sin. He wouldn't succumb to the temptation to sin. And secondly, he was too wise to sin. You know, wisdom is an undervalued thing in our society. A wise person looks ahead and sees the trouble coming and does what he can to avoid it. Most of us only practice partial wisdom. We just set ourselves up to fail quite often. Christ did not do that. Part of the reason we study the doctrine of Christology is, is due to the aspects of the atonement, the atonement that Christ offered for us. The incarnation divides time, the cross separates eternity. Christ was foreordained as the lamb slain before the foundations of the world, and as the lamb once slain, he will become the theme of endless praise. If you think about it, your life can be divided into two pieces, two big pieces. One would be the time you spent before Christ, and the other one would be the time you have spent after accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. Mine became very much split in 1987. I was just a young man at 27 years old. I said that to the Awana kids the other night, and they all groaned, acted like 27 was, you know, right next to death's doorstep. Like, wow, that's old. No, no, it's not old. Stupid kid. Um, I can draw a line in my life at that point, and both sides are extremely different from each other. So the coming of Christ split time. It split our living time, and then the cross split eternity, because either you are with Christ in eternity, or you are in hell for eternity. And the only thing that makes that determination is your faith in Christ, which side of that divisor you are on. God could create the worlds with a word or judge sin in a moment of time, but to atone for sin so that he might be just and the justifier of the ungodly is, is a problem of infinite magnitude. Man must either make personal atonement and that, he could, and that he could never complete, or another must do it for him. And the only one who could is God, and by that, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, Hebrews 10.10. He became the atonement. He became the payment for our sin. He became that one thing that it took to restore our potential relationship between a fallen man and a holy God. There's been a lot of discussion in Christianity over limited and unlimited atonement. I'm not going to try to explain election to you because, frankly, there's times that as I have looked at it, and I have studied it. I've come away with as many questions in my heart as I have 
answers. And that's just being bluntly honest. There are men that have spent their entire life trying to reason through the doctrine of election and have come up at the end of their life and said, I believe it, but I just don't fully understand it. Andy, fair enough? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those mysteries of God. And there's some things God's just not going to let us know. He's just, it's just above our pay grade. And the moment that we are raised in pay grade to where we can ask that question, it's not going to matter anymore. The question about limited and unlimited atonement is this. It's really not about, it's more, it's not really about sufficiency. It's more about efficiency. The atonement is sufficient for all. For everyone that has ever lived and ever will live, the, the atonement, the suffering, the shed blood of Christ is sufficient to atone for all of mankind's sin. For now, for tomorrow, for the rest of all eternity, it is sufficient. There's nobody has been born or will be born that is, it is not sufficient enough to cover. However, it's only efficient for those that will accept Christ by faith. So it's kind of like having a great big pile of money having all the money you could ever need, and then choosing to starve to death because you don't want to spend it. Howard Hughes, one of the richest men in the world, died in a motel room after he had become germophobic and crazy and lived on milk, and he died with long, greasy hair, long fingernails, emaciated. He died because he didn't want to spend his money, part of it. The sufficiency is there. The efficiency is the part that changes our lives. It's efficient because we've put ourselves in a position where we've, we've asked Christ to forgive us. We've accepted by faith his finished work on the cross. When we talk about that crucifixion, we're, uh, there's three words we use, three terms, Christ's death, Christ's cross, and Christ's blood. All of those are interlocked in Scripture. And yes, I know this seems a bit long, but frankly, uh, there's no other way to go through the doctrine of Christ, but you have to talk about the atonement. There's, there's no way to avoid it. If you don't, then you're... And if you don't talk about the atonement, you don't study the atonement and read about the atonement, then, then frankly, when you get to the point of the resurrection, you kind of have to... You're kind of like, well, gee, something just doesn't quite seem... just seems kind of out of place, at least in a theologian's mind. And the first reason for the atonement was redemption. It means literally to buy back... We've been purchased. Paul says you've been purchased with a high price. Um, the atonement bought us back from the market of sin, never to be released, never to be sold again, never to return. We have been purchased and brought out. There's a bunch of Greek words I could use for that, but I'm really not going to do that because, frankly, I failed Greek English, and um, my pronunciation skills aren't very good. I can't quite spit enough to do it. Um, the second word is the propitiation. We use this word. You hear uh, pastors, you hear preachers use it, but it's, um, it's a balanced picture of holy and righteous and a loving God who must be justly satisfied with an adequate provision for dealing with the sin problem of mankind. It's the payment. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the suffering, the offering of the blood was the payment. It, it brought that peace, that balance 
back between God and man that's made available through faith. We're reconciled. Any of you ever been estranged from a loved one? Been at a point where um, things aren't good with you? Long before I was saved, um, I was an alcoholic. And I'd been out on a bender, and I left the house. We lived clear up in Morrow County, God's country. I know it's God's country up there because only he wants to live up there, him and Rick Presley. Um, <laughs> great neighbors, though. Uh, I'd been out on a bender, and the only reason I share this is because it paints the story. And I'd went to work, and I couldn't meet up with the guys I was supposed to meet because their schedule had changed. So I stopped and I made a phone call and I said, Tony, can I come home? We were so estranged, I didn't know if I could even go home. And the reconciliation that took place took a long time for those heels to, those wounds to heal. And there's still some real sore spots, there's still some tender spots about things that happened in our lives. But the reconciliation is the process by where things are balanced out there. There's a transformation, there's, a, there's an adjustment that allows fellowship with God, that allows us to, if you will, even with those of you that are in this group this morning, that if we were to become alienated from each other, reconciliation is the process where you go through those problems together and you restore that relationship and you learn to love again and, and, and you learn to get along and you may not like each other, Quite frankly, there's, there's times when Tony and I don't like each other, but we still love each other. And, and frankly, there's probably more times that she doesn't like me than I don't like her. And I get that because I know me. And I just, that reconciliation that Christ brought by faith, we can know God and we can be balanced in that. We can be back in, in relationship with him. Another thing about the atonement is it's sufficient and it was final. Roman Catholicism wrongly teaches that there is a perpetual sacrifice. In their fine line doctrine, they would say that Christ is still being crucified. He's still being sacrificed. And that's not true. It was on the cross. It was a one time, once for all, one and done. He only went to the cross once. He came off the cross once. He went in the grave once. He came out of the grave once. He ascended to heaven once. Okay, that is the long and the short of Christ's sufferings. His sufferings ended on the cross. When he said, it is finished, it ended. His suffering was done. The suffering was confined to the cross. It was an act of obedience, and it was voluntary. You know, we have this picture sometimes that, that in the garden he prayed, you know, if you'd let this cup pass from me. And, and I'm not so sure if he was talking about the cross or that moment where he would be separated from God the Father forever. For that, or I mean, for that moment. I mean, you think about it. You've, mothers, when was the first time your kids spent the night away from home? Do you remember? You're, you're little, you're first, you're first when you're little, when you're love child, you're, you're baby. And the first time that baby spent the night away from home. Remember how terrifying that was? Anybody here be willing to share that? I mean, would you be willing to say, yeah, I remember? Of course, fathers don't get that way. You know, hey, hey the kid's gone, cool. Okay, no more noise, right? Yeah, mothers don't sleep. They're worried about their kid. 
I mean, they're sitting there well, right next to the phone. And, and when that child comes back in the morning and you kind of look them over and you realize that they're okay, that all their arms are still there and they're not missing any fingers or anything, and, and you rejoice that they're home, and that time apart seems like forever, imagine an eternity together, always seeing God's face, always being together, and then on a cross, naked, bloodied, and dying, God the Father turns his back on you and you can't see his face. I think that was what Christ was praying about. Lord, if you can, remove this cup from me. I don't think it was the cross. I don't think he was afraid of the cross. I don't think he was afraid of the beatings. He knew those things were coming. He's seen all this coming. I think his, his genuine prayer in my heart was that he knew that God the Father was not going to be able to look on him as he bore the sins of the world. Pretty horrifying. And then quickly to wrap up, I want to be done about 25 after. The part that we focus on so much here just recently was the resurrection. What was the resurrection all about? Why was Christ resurrected? Wow. Boy, Alex Trebek would have probably known this one. He was resurrected, number one, to fulfill Scripture. Secondly, to um, show his power over the grave. Did he not say, I lay my life down and I also have the power to pick it back up again? If you kill me, I will destroy this temple. I will raise it back in three days. He will destroy it. He also said that, um, that he would not leave us alone later on. It's an essential part of the gospel. We teach our young people the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we always tell them that Jesus died for our sins and he went to the grave and was resurrected because that's our hope of the resurrection. That's why the Sadducees were called Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Um, I read that somewhere, I, I don't know, I, I thought it was clever. I'm sure it's not new. And, and frankly, the resurrection is a unique doctrine to Christianity. Nobody else has a living and resurrected Savior. Muhammad, nope. Buddha, nope. Uh, you know, I sat here the other day, or sat at home, had my uh, world religion notes out, kind of glanced through them, and I realized that uh, there are some pretty messed up theologies in the world, and we've got one that says our God came to earth, took on the form of flesh, died on the Christ, on the cross, buried and resurrected, and we are the only ones that have that living hope that Christ puts in us because of the resurrection. I've lost my father a few years ago, and I'm fairly certain, unless God varies, that soon enough my mother will pass from this world. But I have the promise that at the resurrection that we will see each other again, and we will be known as we were known. And, and Christ says, I'm, we're all going. We're, if you're in Christ, you're going to be resurrected. You're going to, you're going to spend your eternity with him. The resurrection was power over the grave, power over, over earth, power over the forces that, that nobody else could have. The, the whole idea of his power over nature even goes back to uh, on the water in the boat calming the waves. And when he said, peace be still, and the water got as smooth as glass, right? Um, that's something else. I'd like to have seen that. I'd like to have seen him walk on water. 
would like to have seen the miracle that he performed for Peter with the fish there on the Sea of Galilee. I'd like to have seen that. There are things that he did that showed his power, of author uh, his power and authority over nature. The resurrection is one of those. It also shows a fulfillment of prophecies and predictions. The Old Testament talked about it. The New Testament uh, solidifies it. The person of Christ, his power and position required it. And it's also a part of the propitiation of our payment for our sins. His resurrection was bodily. It was with, without any question. It was not just a, a ghost. It wasn't just a, a likeness of him. It was him. What did Thomas say? Doubting Thomas said, my Lord and my God, when he did what? Stuck his fingers in the hole. said, my Lord and my God. So he appeared. He appeared for, to 500 people or so and, and more have seen And then they watched him ascend into heaven. They watched him leave there from the shore. And, uh, you know, the promises are that he will come back. And in that, that is what we are looking for. I don't know about you. How many of you have children that will be of dating age fairly soon? When our little girl was about six, Now, yours is never going to date, right? You're going to pick, pick a husband out of the book and say, here, this one's yours? <laughs> yes, yes, you can, as a matter of fact. You got, got her chained in the basement? <laughs> Set a bowl of food and some water out for her, said, I'll be back. When I got saved in 87, Mandy was born in, in uh, 82, and, and somewhere between 87 and 90, it dawned on us that eventually someday Mandy would be old enough to date. And uh, we fervently prayed a couple of times that Christ would come back before she was old enough to date. And uh, we even bought the book, uh, 88 Reasons Why Christ Has to Come Back in 88. Anybody remember that book? And then he published the sequel in 89. It said 89 Reasons. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't buy that one either. Um, and, and we prayed diligently shortly, that, that Christ would come back before we had to go through that, before she had to go through all of that. And, and then that seemed like sheer folly. But we all want his return, and his return couldn't have happened had he not have been resurrected. Had he not have returned to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, he could not return in the rapture. And those, are, those events are going to be covered in eschatology, which is the one ology I left out at the beginning, and that's the doctrine of, of final times. And without the resurrection, without the sacrifice, without the atonement, without his sinless life, without his pre-incarnate nature, without his pre-existence eternally, and the promise of eternal existence on the other side of this world, we really don't have a savior. Christ, the doctrine of Christology, very clearly says that our God was very much involved in every aspect of our salvation. Do I understand election? Do I know which one of you are elect? Nope, I can't see that far. Don't know. I can see what you're showing me, but I can't see inside your heart. But trust me, Christ can. He can see what's going on in your heart. He knows where you're at. The doctrine of Christology. If you want more, I have some college notes that uh, 
that I'd be willing to share with you. Of course, you have to pay me heavily for them. But um, I'd be willing to share with you what I have, what I have studied in college. And if you think this was a brain salad surgery, you ought to sit underneath a professor who goes long and hard at this, and it'll make your head spin. You'll walk out of there going, boy, I don't know if I could ever do this or not. The doctrine of Christology. What's next? Who's got, you've got next week, right? Which one? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, little stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I looked at my notes and went, there's no way you can do the subject justice in an hour. Yeah. So I'm not going to, I'm going to do it in 53 minutes. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for all that you've done, for your time, for our time, for the comforts that we share, the things that we have, the promises you have made, the promises you have kept. Lord, we pray today that you'll just watch over us and guide us. Lead us in paths of righteousness. Let us be wise to the devil's wiles. Let us be as harmless as sheep. Let us go through this life praising you. In Christ's name, amen.